morning. Well, this morning we return to our study of Isaiah, and we come to the marvelous chapter of Isaiah 55. I'm very excited about it. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we finished our five-week series through Isaiah 53, and in Isaiah 53, we saw the sufferings and then glory of the preeminent servant God would send into the world to be the Savior of the world. And then in, in the next couple of chapters, Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 55, uh, Isaiah elaborates on this theme of the Savior God will send. And what Isaiah 55 does is it sheds more light on who the Savior is and what He's promising to all the cultures of the world who are seeking satisfaction. I believe that, that if the Apostle Paul were in America, if he were sent to America today, he would preach Isaiah 55. And that's because there is a drama even greater than just surviving that takes place in the life of every person. All human beings are looking for a kind of ultimate happiness, ultimate satisfaction, uh, ultimate meaning in life that seems like it can be so elusive. And this is true even for people who live at the subsistence level, uh, but in America, we're not living at the subsistence level. We have, uh, uh, we have an amount of prosperity and political freedom and peace and, and even, dare I say, an amount of downtime uh, that many other people uh, in history haven't had, and that frees us up to pursue satisfaction in an even greater way than someone who's living hand-to-mouth. Pastor Charles Spurgeon explains this human pursuit of satisfaction this way. He says, men are in restless pursuit of satisfaction in earthly things. They will exhaust themselves in the deceitful delights of sin and finding them to be all vanity and emptiness, they will become very perplexed and disappointed, but they will continue their fruitless search. Though wearied, they, were, they will stagger forward under the influence of spiritual madness. And though there is no result to be reached except that of everlasting disappointment, yet they press forward. They have no forethought for their eternal state. The present hour absorbs them. They turn to another and then another of earth's broken cisterns, hoping to find water where not a drop was ever discovered yet. At the end of that quote, Charles Spurgeon alludes to something that the prophet Jeremiah talks about. Uh, the land of Israel is a much more arid land than Virginia. It's also a little bit more hilly. And so, one of the things they would do, they, they had to be much more preoccupied with water like we do. Uh, so, you know, if you've, if you've seen um, uh, the movie Dune, you know, it's a little bit more like Arrakis. You've got to worry about water over there. And so, one of the things they would do to preserve water is about a third of the way down the hill, a lot of their, a lot of their villages and towns were built on hills for de defensive purposes. And about a third of the way down the hill, they would dig a hole in the ground. And then inside that hole, they would then expand it and, and then they would so that they had a narrow mouth and then a vast expanse on the interior. And then they would plaster it to make it watertight. And when it rained, they would even sometimes build little really low walls of rock or stone to sort of channel the water into that hole. Uh, and that hole is something that we call a cistern. And uh, what they would do is cover the hole to keep light from coming in that would cause bacteria or algae to grow and thrive. They would also cover the hole because animals who could smell the water and who were desperate for water might come and in their desperation to get at the water, 
fall down into the hole and drown and foul up our water supply. And so they had to keep the hole covered. And even after it rained, they couldn't use that water for a time. You know, they'd give it a day or two because they needed to let the sediment that washed into the cistern off the hillside, they needed to give the sediment a chance uh, to sink to the bottom. Um, this was a way for them to store water, to have water in a time of need. But it wasn't the living water of a spring. It wasn't the fresh water of a, of a well dug into an underground flowing aquifer. In biblical language, we would call cistern water dead water. It is stagnant. It is stale. It doesn't move. And sometimes uh, an unseen crack could develop in the cistern, and the water would just leak out into the surrounding soil, and it would no longer hold water that flowed into it. Well, that's, uh, that picture of a cistern is the physical picture that Jeremiah uses to describe what's happened to the people of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, we read this, the Lord says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That picture of hewing out a broken cistern that holds no water and instead of turning to the Lord, who is the fountain of living waters, that is a, an appropriate picture for wayward Israel, for their idolatry, but it also accurately pictures what's going on with all human beings. It pictures people in our own day. Uh, while, dealing with our, while, while we would admit we deal with our own struggles, uh, the elder board and uh, uh, Patty and Brooke and I, we all see this on a regular basis as church leaders. Uh, we, we experience this on a regular basis, not only in our own lives, but also as we minister to others. Uh, people are looking for happiness the problem is a lot of people are looking for happiness in all the wrong places, and we see it in the counseling room. We turn from the fountain of living waters, uh, living, fresh, flowing, cool waters, uh, to hew out broken cisterns that don't hold any water, and even if they held water, it would be stale, stagnant water that we would have to check before we drank from it to make sure an animal hadn't fallen in and died. Who we are and what we live for is often a picture of spiritual madness. What does that have to do with Isaiah? Well, in Isaiah 55, uh, Isaiah speaks about this same thing that Jeremiah talks about, but he uses a different metaphor. He uses different language to describe it, and we're going to look at Isaiah 55 over the next two weeks. Now, I'm going to do the same thing I did with Isaiah 53. I'm going to read the whole chapter both weeks, and then we'll just look at a portion of it. Uh, in Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1, we read this, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what's good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a, leaders and commander, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation who you do not know. A nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I send it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Hmm. Well, after the incredible prophecy of Isaiah 53 about the Lord's servant, about His suffering and glory and the saving work He would perform, uh, the next two chapters of Isaiah spend time celebrating the Lord's work uh, in, in Isaiah 54 you get a celebration of Messiah's work. And what we're told is that His substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning work will restore spiritually adulterous Israel to her estranged husband. It will replace her spiritual poverty and despair with prosperity and peace. And uh, the Lord, in His timing, will even create a new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells. Uh, and all that is talked about is uh, the joy of what the work of Messiah will do. There's no commands in the passage, no instructions, just a celebration of what happened back in Isaiah 53. But when we come to Isaiah 55, Isaiah turns from describing the effects of Messiah's work to instructing Israel on how they, and now us Gentiles who read it, how we can receive the benefits of the Savior's work. And in the first seven verses of chapter 12, or excuse me, of chapter uh, 55, which we're in, uh, in the first seven verses, there are 12 verbs of command. It's very striking after you read through Isaiah 54. All of a sudden, you come to Isaiah 55, you get 12 verbs of command that all implore us not to miss out on what God has done for us through His suffering servant. And the backdrop to all of these commands is the human quest for satisfaction and that tendency of the human heart to look for meaning and purpose and ultimate happiness in all the wrong places. Uh, verse 1 taps into this biblical teaching uh, that people are looking for satisfaction by teaching us that every human being is spiritually hungry and thirsty. Again, verse 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now, uh, our translators have preserved the old English translations. Uh, they've preserved the old English word, ho. Uh, that's from earlier. Uh, that's from old English. That's from like the days of William Tyndale. And what it is, is it's, it's an old English exclamation trying to get people's attention. In Hebrew, the word is oi, oi, uh, listen up, pay attention. Uh, listen here, pay close attention. All of you who are thirsty for happiness, come to these waters. All of you who are hungry for satisfaction, 
come here and take advantage of food without cost. Uh, it's not just water, uh, it's water and food. It's not just water and food, it's water and food and milk and fine wine. And it's all for free. It's all free for the taking for anybody who will come because the Lord's servant has already paid the price to make this food and drink available. What's going on here in verse 1? Well, verse 1 is asking a very important question that every single one of us as Americans needs to answer. Where are you looking to find ultimate satisfaction and happiness? Where are you looking for uh, peace and contentment even in the middle of difficulty? Where are you looking for a sense of inner well-being and uh, a higher meaning and purpose for your life? The Bible is clear that God has built human beings with an insatiable hunger and thirst for satisfaction. Where did this come from? Well, if you remember, when God created human beings, He created us not just to put on display His glory for the watching angels and other beings, He also created us to have relationship with Him. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. There was relationship there. But a void has been produced by our sin. We either run away from God and try to hide from Him because of our guilt and shame over our sin, or we prefer to just ignore Him and go our own way so that we can have our own way. We like to go astray so that we can do what we want to do. And whether we're hiding or just going astray so we can have our own way, in either case, what it produces, spiritually speaking, is loneliness. Yes, like straying sheep, we can have our own way, but we're lonely for the God who made us. And so, God intervenes to seek us out and restore us to Himself. That's the story of the Bible, and that's the highlight of that chapter, Isaiah 53, we were just in. God's suffering servant came to reconcile us to God so that we can drink from living waters, so that we can have that which is food indeed, instead of trying to find uh, something to drink from broken cisterns. Uh, if you want to get on a path where you can find true meaning in life and real satisfaction, Isaiah 55 is your chapter. Um, if you, you only have one life to live, and if you don't want to waste it, Isaiah 55 is the chapter for you. Uh, it shows you not only how to find satisfaction, but how to capitalize on the promise of satisfaction that God gives. But before we get there, I have to give you a warning. The spiritual hunger and thirst that you experience is both a grace and a danger. It's a grace because it has the capacity to draw you back to a healthy relationship with your Creator. But it is dangerous because in a fallen world, with your fallen heart, there is the temptation to seek satisfaction in the wrong things. Look at the warning of verse 2. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what's good and delight yourself in abundance. There is a kind of spiritual bread and spiritual drink that isn't nourishing to the soul. According to verse 2, there's really only two kinds of spiritual food and drink out there. The first, uh, it looks good, it, it looks like it would be satisfying, but in the end, you know, you're hungry a half hour after you eat it. And then there is another kind of spiritual comfort food for the soul. Uh, I love Hebrew, and at the end of verse 2, literally, it reads, delight yourself in fatty food. 
And so I'm going to translate it for the rest of this sermon, spiritual comfort food. But if your translation says fine food and you prefer lobster and fine wine, that's great. You know, it can also be fine food for you as well. Those of you who are foodies, right? It can be fine food for you. It's going to be comfort food uh, for me. Uh, relationship with God, then, is for the soul what comfort food and good drink are to the body. Relationship with God is like a satisfying meal to a man who's starving or a cup of cold water to a man in a desert. Uh, this is a gracious offer. But the problem with God's offer is that it competes with another offer. There is in life, if you will, a spiritual grocery store where food and drink come from competing producers. And though the amount of choices is dizzying, there are only actually two categories of food. One kind of food and drink demands that you labor to earn money and then spend your money purchasing that which claims to satiate your hunger. It comes attractively packaged and advertised, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't satiate you. The other kind of product that is offered is offered for free because the Lord's servant already paid the price to make the food and drink available to you. And though it doesn't appear satisfying to the instincts of the fallen human heart, it's actually the only food in the store that is satisfying. Look, uh, think about this from a physical perspective, right? You guys know this. Whenever you go grocery shopping on an empty stomach, if you go grocery shopping when you're hungry, you know that it doesn't work out as well, right? You, you walk in the store, and you're not clueless about what you should buy. You know that you need a good mix of healthy kinds of protein, healthy fat, and a limited amount of healthy kinds of carbohydrates. You know that. But what happens when you go in and you're hungry? You buy all the wrong stuff. You buy junk food. You buy cookies instead of avocados. You buy chocolate instead of spinach, right? That's what happens when you go to the grocery store hungry. You're, you're a bad consumer, uh, spiritually speaking. That's what this passage is talking about. Uh, one of Brooke's favorite comedy sketches is a video from Studio C. And I recommend Studio C. It's uh, mostly clean comedy, uh, and uh, you can find it online. And one of her favorite Studio Cs is where there's a mother who has to stock up on groceries from Costco, and this is the first time she's taking her youngest child, so she's going to have to take three young children into Costco, and it's Studio C, right? So they have all the women dressed up in medieval costumes in a castle, and she's trying to put together a battle plan with counsel from these other mothers. And one of the other mothers asks her, why not just send your husband? And the protagonist slaps her for saying it and says, you fool, the last time I sent him into the store for diapers and he came home with four dozen uh, muffins, you know? Uh, it's just, you're, you, you go in and you don't come out with what you should. You're a bad consumer. There is spiritual food that will nourish you, that's available to you. Uh, you could be eating uh, spiritual potatoes and biscuits and gravy and steak and lobster with fine wine, and instead you're coming back with Twizzlers and Pixie Sticks. It's just disappointing. Uh, some of you are savvy consumers about which car to buy. Some of you are savvy consumers about household products. You know whether to buy a, a, a more inexpensive product because it will work just as good as the more expensive ones or whether on this kind of purchase you need to buy the more expensive one because it'll last longer and it'll do a better job. 
you're very uh, savvy about those. Some of you are very savvy about the nutrients you're putting in your body. When you go to the grocery store, you don't make as many uh, junk food purchases as I do. You look at the back of the box and you see how many carbs are in it. And you look at the fine print of what ingredients went into it before you buy it. In fact, truth be told, most of the time you're not looking at the back of the box because you know you should be eating whole unprocessed foods. So most of the time you're not even buying something that's boxed because you eat so healthy. You're savvy about what you eat but you're not always savvy about what you're putting in to your soul. When it comes to making spiritual purchases, some of you are the worst consumers. You're spending your money on empty products when by only investing a little bit of time and energy, you could have what satisfies for free. And so what Isaiah 55 is doing is it's awakening us to the fact that you live in a world where your heart is instinctively enticed by spiritual junk food, and that spiritual junk food comes attractively packaged in false advertising. Um, one of the most entertaining moments for the children in the Krupp home is whenever daddy comes home from grocery shopping. And this is because they have learned that there is a little bit of discontinuity, if you will, between the list that Brooke sends me out with and the list I come home with. And, and so when I come and I put those groceries on the counter, they gather like vultures because they've learned that the debrief book and Brooke and I are going to have can be their own little marital sitcom. It'll be quite hilarious to see mommy and daddy debrief with each other about what should and shouldn't have been purchased. Uh, not long ago, I went shopping, and, and at the time, we were, we were kind of trying to stay away from Ritz crackers, and they're my favorite. Uh, I could re eat Ritz crackers with anything. And one of my daughters... Uh, was standing there in the aisle, and she's like, Daddy, can we get Ritz crackers? And I'm thinking in my head, oh, like father, like daughter, oh, this is great. And so I said, oh, oh do, do, you, do you like Ritz crackers? You want me to buy them for you because you like them? And she said, no, I don't like Ritz crackers. I just want to see the look on mommy's face when you bring them home. <laughs> That's the family I live in. And, and one of my favorite of all time stories is when we first moved to Virginia, we were, we were not prepared for the winters that you guys have and I know all of you from the Northeast are just like totally mocking me right now because you're like, you think that's winter? Uh, but we were not prepared for the winters. And uh, I remember maybe a couple years after we moved here, uh, one of the things Brooke likes to do on winter mornings is she likes to make pancakes for us, but she makes different recipes every day. It's like a different kind of pancake, different recipes, so that there's variety. It's not the same kind every day. And of course, we're going to eat pancakes with syrup. Now, uh, uh, I got used to the processed syrup, right, that you pour out. It's like motor oil. That stuff, I love that stuff. Uh, but Brooke was trying to transition us from that to the actual maple syrup, the, the real thing. She was trying to transition us to the real thing, which is more healthy for you. And she sent me to a grocery store where she wasn't sure if they would actually carry that. And so she told me, look, get the, get the real stuff, but if you can't get that, and you have to get one of those other brands, uh, make sure that it doesn't have corn syrup in it. So I went out of the door with my marching orders, and sure enough, I found like my favorite brand, Log Cabin. I found Log Cabin, and on the Log Cabin, it said, no high fructose corn syrup. And I'm like, ha-ha, see, no high fructose corn syrup. This is great. I can still have what I want. It doesn't have high fructose corn syrup. She'll be happy. It'll be wonderful. I bring it home. I proudly show Brooke my purchase. She takes the bottle from me, 
flips it over, hands it back to me, and says, read the first ingredient at the bottom. And the first ingredient was corn syrup. It wasn't high fructose refined corn syrup, but it's still corn syrup, right? It was, I think it was misleading advertising, right? Uh, all of us by nature, and the, the point of that story I'm giving is all of us by nature are poor consumers, spiritually speaking. We tend to invest our time and energy and hope in the wrong things. Uh, and I would just uh, exhort you as your pastor, especially those of you who've been in the Lord a long time, I know you've grown, I know you're mature, but don't think you've risen to the point of no longer being tempted to find satisfaction in money or possessions or achievements or romantic relationships or having the perfect children or the perfect uh, marriage or even, you know, one thing that I think is, it's tempting to all people, but I think it can be particularly tempting to men and tempting to men in our careers is the inner circle, right? In every business and every career, there's sort of like this inner circle of the powerful or the successful and celebrated people, and we want to kind of work to get into that inner circle. It's, it's really like, it's something that really attracts us. And uh, those kinds of things, uh, and it's not wrong if you end up in there, as long as you're not making that where you're going to find all your satisfaction and fulfillment in life. There are counterfeit kinds of spiritual food and drink that are being offered to you, but they don't satisfy the soul. So if every single one of us is spiritual, uh, spiritually hungry, and there are two kinds of spiritual food, what food should I choose? Specifically, right? I know it's a metaphor. I can tell it's a metaphor, but just tell me what to do, Isaiah. What am I supposed to do? We'll look at verse, verses 3 through 5. Incline your ear, says the Lord, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know. A nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now, don't miss the transition there. This is very important for understanding the passage. Don't miss the transition between verses 2 and 3. Uh, we're told to come and buy and eat, verse 1. Uh, we're warned that there's competing products, verse 2, but we still haven't been told what this spiritual food and drink is. And then verse 3 says, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live. So in verse 3, the food we're supposed to come to and buy and eat is a living relationship with the God who makes our souls live, who gives us spiritual health. Now think about that health for a moment, spiritually healthy, being spiritually healthy. I know all of you, every single one of us, we share in common wanting to be physically healthy. Uh, you guys do preventative things to try and stay healthy. And then uh, as, you, as all of us wrestle with the different physical ailments we have, there are things you do to try to alleviate symptoms and to try and heal the disease or, or the thing that's broken uh, that needs to be fixed. Well, if you want to be spiritually healthy, what do you do for your soul? Well, you quit running away from God. You quit ignoring Him. A covenant with you that's motivated by the same hesed love that He showed to David. That's verse 3. Uh, mercies, the, 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 the idea of faithful mercies there is hesed love. And the idea of hesed love in Hebrew, sometimes we translate it steadfast love, loving kindness. I would prefer to translate it permanent love. That doesn't sound very romantic, but 
permanent love, and what I mean by that is this is the love of God He sets on people uh, salvifically, eternally, whereby He will never turn His back on them and never give up on them. That's the kind of love that we're talking about here. Well, motivated by that kind of love, God will make an eternal covenant with you that uh, is the same as the eternal covenant He made to David. Now, here's the main point I want to get at for New Testament ears, because I admit that verses 4 and 5 make this a little complicated, and I'm going to try to keep it simple. Verses 4 and 5 are dealing with the Davidic covenant, and there are multiple promises God made in the Davidic covenant, but what's the main promise that God made in the Davidic covenant? Well, the main promise God made was that He would give David a special descendant who would become an eternal king. And in Isaiah 53, we learn that this eternal king will come, and surprisingly, he will humble himself and die as a guilt offering for his rebellious subjects to to, uh, uh, redeem them from their treason and rebellion and sin. But his guilt offering won't be the end. He will rise again from the dead and be high and lifted up and greatly exalted because of His saving work. That King is the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn that from the New Testament. Uh, He is the Davidic King that God promised, and He is a Davidic King promised ahead of time who is not just a Savior for God's chosen people Israel, but would also be a, a Savior for all nations, for all peoples, for all the Gentiles. And the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is the greatest prophet, priest, and king of all time. Uh, As a prophet, He is the eternal Word who dwelled with God the Father from eternity past. And in the Father's perfect timing, the Son took on human flesh, He added humanity to His divine nature, came, dwelled among us, and taught us both by His teaching and by His life. What He did and what He modeled also teaches for us, and He is the perfect prophet. Uh, When He was on earth, He was literally the voice of God on earth while He was among us during His earthly ministry. He is also the greatest high priest of all time. He didn't just offer the right sacrifice in the right way to get the job done. He offered Himself as a perfect, once-for-all, never-needs-to-be-repeated sacrifice for the sins of all who will ever believe. And He is also the perfect King, who will come again and reign as King over all kings and Lord over all presidents and prime ministers. And and this is the important part about His kingship. If you read in the Davidic covenant, if you read Isaiah 53, the important thing about Him as King is this. He is a King who is for you. He gave Himself for you. He went to the cross with your name on His heart. So, He's not like the human kings who become obsessed with only preserving their own hegemony and how will this make the monarchy look and how can I stay in power. That's not the kind of king He is. He is a king who is for you. And what He does for you is reconcile you to God and uh, He becomes a kind of spiritual food and drink that satisfies. I, the, the title of the sermon is Only Jesus Satisfies. I get that from verses uh, 4 and 5, and I, I brought my mug this morning. Only Jesus satisfies. Caffeine sure comes close in the morning, but I still know it's actually only Jesus. And, and again, I just want to be clear. I, I think if, if you're a discerning believer, you could be looking at my outline and, you know, Pastor Chris, bless you, 
but I don't see Jesus anywhere in the passage. Where I'm getting Jesus from is uh, He is the promise of the Davidic covenant that is being alluded to by Isaiah in verses 3 through 5. So, so if having a restored relationship with God, verse 3, or as I'm claiming with Jesus Christ, verses 4 through 5, if that's what really satisfies, if that's the only spirit, uh, true uh, food and drink that satisfies, the question then becomes, what do I do to consume it? What do I do to eat it and drink it? How do I, I understand it's a metaphor, but now move away from the metaphor and just tell me, how do I eat and drink this food for the sake of my soul? Well, the answer is that you consume, how do you consume Christ? You consume Him by faith, and we're given pictures in this passage of what it means to consume Him by faith. But before I get there, I do want to talk about one way that we consume Him by faith, that we're given a good picture of it, is in the Lord's Supper, right? We just celebrated the Lord's Supper last week. What happens in the Lord's Supper? Well, I reach out by faith, and I take the bread which is a symbol of His body broken for me, I reach out by faith and take the cup, which is the blood by which He ratified the new covenant. Uh, and what I'm doing is when I take those, I am saying by my actions, I want and, and I confess I need the benefits of what Christ has done, and I'm consuming Him by faith. But I don't think we're just left to define what it means to consume Christ uh, by faith, by you know, cross-referencing to the New Testament and using the Lord's Supper as an illustration, I think you find the language of the passage tells you, uh, it gives you uh, ways that you consume Him. Uh, whenever you're reading through Scripture and you come to metaphors, and there's a lot of metaphors that picture spiritual reality, those metaphors are not just there as ornamental language, right? They're not just there to kind of help the English majors appreciate the Bible a little bit more, even though it was written to different people who have different literary tastes than we do. That, that's not why it's there. The, it, 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 it is there to also convey meaning. You're meant to lean into the metaphor and say, okay, what can I learn from the metaphor? And in verses 1 through 3 of the passage, we're given commands within the metaphor that I think tell us how we consume Christ by faith. We're commanded to come, buy, eat, listen carefully, and delight ourselves in abundant comfort food. So, let's talk about those just briefly. Come means that you go to the section of the spiritual grocery store where you find Christ. Where is that? Well, I would say, I mean, two places jump out to me. Privately, by communing with Him through studying and reading His Word. Do you love the Bible? not just for its wisdom and for the principles it gives you for living, but because in it you see the beauty and truth and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love this book? Because through it you meet with God. Do you come to the Bible and buy the food of Christ by investing some of your downtime and energy to study it and learn from it? And do you come to the section of the grocery store where God's people fellowship and worship with Him, and have His truth proclaimed. Uh, I believe you come to Him by fellowshipping with His people. Though we're all called to approach God privately and in prayer and in worship, uh, God takes special delight when His people pray together corporately, when they sing together about Him, when they hear His Word read and explained and taught. One of the ways you feed on Christ is by fellowshipping with His people 
and by communing with Him privately through His Word. We're also commanded here to buy. Now, I know at, at first glance, buy could be confusing because, uh, because people who have no money are commanded to buy this, but verse 1 clarifies, right, uh, it's calling for a transaction where the buyer doesn't have any money, but what's being offered is being offered for free. So, what's going on? Well, buy is a word of commitment. You have to make a commitment. You have to buy in. Uh, you have to commit yourself. You have to invest time to learn what Jesus taught and did. And as you do invest that time, you find out that uh, it, it becomes clear you're going to have to commit yourself to Bible study and prayer and fellowshipping with His people. And this is where we need to talk about your shopping cart. If you're going to get enough of Christ to take you through the week, your shopping cart doesn't have enough room for the food and drink Christ offers and also grabbing the junk food of the world. It won't fit in your cart. You have to make a commitment that you're going to fill your cart with Christ and the food and drink He offers. Um, you have to buy in. Uh, another command here is eat. Now, eat means that you consume Him by faith. If you, if you don't mind me switching the metaphor from uh, a grocery store to a restaurant. If you go to a restaurant and you make the commitment to choose uh, the food and drink of Christ off the menu instead of those other things that are offered on the menu, then when the food and drink finally arrives, it means that you eat and drink it. It would make no sense to go to a restaurant, choose the right meal, and then when it comes, just not partake of it. Uh, and so, what that means spiritually is this. When you study the Word, you don't do it mindlessly. You don't just run your eyes over the words and get through a chapter or two because you set a goal uh, to get through a chapter or two, and when you get it done, you feel productive. No, no, no. You're there to, you're there uh, without, you're there to linger over it. You're there to study it. You're there to meditate over it. It means when you come to church, even though you might know that worship song well enough that you could totally check out uh, and the words would still come out of your mouth because you've sung it a hundred times. Uh, it means that instead of doing that and checking out, you keep your mind engaged, praying the lyrics of that song as a prayer to the Lord. It means that as God's Word is preached and explained, you listen to it, even though your pastor is a man of modest gifting, whose sermons lag a bit in the middle, and they can't compete with a good action movie. Sometimes I watch movies with my family, and I'm just like, how can we even compete with that? There's like no, I don't have any explosions, I don't got a compelling soundtrack. It's just like, what are preachers going to do? But I'm sorry, my, my self-pity as a preacher isn't moving us forward. So, the point is this, the point is this, you eat Christ by faith, and, and uh, I think in our metaphor, what we want to say is this, you don't fall into mindless ritualism. A, uh, uh, a previous generation of Christians would call that ritualism. You don't fall into the bad habit of sort of coming, you come to the right place, but then your mind checks out and you're thinking about whatever's going on in the afternoon or what you have coming up this week instead of focusing on what's going on spiritually. That's what it means to eat. And then three times in this, these verses, we're also commanded to listen. Verse 2, listen carefully to me and eat what's good. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you might live. In other words, stop going your own way. Stop rebelling and listen to what God has to say. Start listening to Him through His Word and listen to 
what he says about what truly satisfies. And then the final command, verse 2, is to delight yourself. I think some translations say be satisfied with the abundance of spiritual comfort food Christ offers. And delight yourself carries the idea of having tasted Christ and seen that He's good and making the commitment, I'm not going to run back to that junk food. I know it's tempting. I still have moments of weakness where I make the wrong purchase, but I'm going to make I'm going to make the effort and I'm going to make the commitment not to indulge in the junk food. I've tasted Christ. I've seen He's good. He's the food I want. That's what the first uh, half of Isaiah 55 teaches. Everyone is spiritually hungry and thirsty. There's only two kinds of spiritual food and drink. Jesus is the only spiritual food and drink that satisfies, and you and I must consume Him by faith. But there is more. Uh, when I look at the structure of this, just grammatically in Hebrew, uh, verses 1 through 5 and 6 through 13 are two parts of a chapter, and they fit perfectly. There's actually a four-part outline that has the same points in it, but is set a little bit differently, set in parallel, that Isaiah gives. And it's very tempting for me as a pastor to want to end at verse 5, but that is spiritual malpractice. I have to say just a couple words about verses 6 and 7. Look at the warning we're given. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Uh, <clears throat> my favorite sport, I love sports, and when I was a teenager, I think that my heart idol, my obsession, was sports, playing them, watching them, and my favorite sport is football. And... Uh, one of the things that is uh, the most satisfying to me in sports as a fan is watching a football game that's live. It's not archived where I know the score and the outcome. It's a live game where the team I'm cheering for comes from behind in the last two minutes, marches down the field, and scores a go-ahead touchdown or field goal to win the game at the last minute. I find that absolutely thrilling and exhilarating and satisfying. But as satisfying as I find it, okay, I can't completely shut off my analytic side to just enjoy the romance of everything that's unfolding in front of me. Uh, I still have an analytic side. And as the clock winds down to zero, as happy as I am for my team I'm cheering for, I can't help but ask the question, why didn't we just play that way in the first quarter? Why did we wait till the end of the game to get a first, why did we wait to the end of the game to actually convert in the red zone? What's going on there? Well, how did this happen? Well, having played high school football and been on teams where we did have some last-minute comebacks, I think that I can, I think I know one of the reasons why. There is something about having a deadline that creates the ambiance of an emergency and in an emergency, people are motivated to do things that we wouldn't normally be motivated to do. Uh, we look at this offer of spiritual food and drink for free that satisf satisfies from Christ, and because of the backwardness of our natures and the fallenness of our desires, we look it in the face, we know intellectually that what, we know what the right answer is intellectually, and yet because of our desires, 
we're still tempted to opt for the junk food. And so the, the gracious warning of verses 6 and 7 is this. This is a wonderful, wonderful uh, offer that you're being given, but it has an expiration date. The milk that's being offered, it eventually goes sour. Uh, this is a limited time offer. The author of Hebrews says it this way, it's appointed unto all mankind once to die, and after that, the judgment. Uh, now is the time to come. You don't live in some crazy corner of a multiverse where the football game of your life has 10, 15-minute quarters. You get four quarters, and if I may be candid, we are already at the two-minute warning in the fourth quarter. Now is the time to come to the Lord while He may be found. Now is the time where He will be found near for salvation. And so, I just want to exhort you, if you haven't already come to Christ, now is the time. But I know that many of you in here listening have already come to Christ. That's why you're here. You are trying to consume Him by faith. And so, I don't know about you, but the question this passage raises for me is, what about those times when I don't desire Christ? What about those times, what about on Monday morning when I wake up and I don't give a rip about the spiritual food, I'd just rather eat junk food? What about that? Well, I believe the soul has a limited capacity just like your stomach does. Um, and uh, if you make a habit of overindulging in sugar and carbs, your body isn't going to crave uh, and be satisfied by the healthy protein and the healthy fat that's best for you. Uh, maybe this could be an illustration. Sometimes I come home from work and I'm famished. And Brooke is in the kitchen making a healthy and delicious meal from scratch, and I want to try and sneak to the pantry and get some chocolate-covered almonds. And I try to sneak a snack, and Brooke fusses at me, and she fusses at me for two reasons. Number one, I don't need the calories. But number two, and more importantly, if the children see, they'll want a snack, and they have stomachs that are smaller than mine. If they eat a snack, and then we sit down for the meal, they're going to eat two bites of what she made, and then say, I'm full, and not eat anything more of what she made. Well, I believe the soul works the same way. If you're trying to fill your soul with money and the things it can buy, or endlessly entertaining yourself to death, or, or trying to get a, a certain title or position or power, you're trying to consolidate power in family or at work or in some other context, and that's all you want is to be in charge and have power and control. If you're trying to fill your soul that way, then when you come to church or when you sit down to read your Bible, you're probably not going to be that hungry. You're going to be saying things to yourself like, what is going on? I believe everything written by Moses and the prophets and the apostles, but it doesn't move me. I think everything Pastor Chris is saying is right. It just, it doesn't move me at all. I, I don't feel motivated at all. Well, if that's you, what I would recommend is do this. Take a break from the things in life that you're pursuing to try and find happiness in, that you're pursuing, that you're obsessing over, that you're compulsive about. Uh, when you have mental downtime and there's nothing distracting you, where does your mind wander to? Well, whatever that is, take a break from it. Fast, fast from it, if you will, for a time. And see if you don't become more hungry and thirsty and have more of an appetite for Christ. That would be my advice if you're already in Christ, but you struggle with hungering and thirsting for the right thing. Let's pray.